everyone, and welcome to DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. Today's scary thing is riding a bike. Now, to stop it being scary, we're not going to stop you riding a bike. What we're going to try to do is to stop it being a scary thing. What is it that makes bikes dangerous and how do we make them safer? From my background, I really don't know that much about bicycles in a professional capacity. Bicycles are a great example, though, of a case where we have lots of people eager to do things to make them safer, but we have arguments about what are the right things to do. I thought it would be interesting for me, and hopefully for you too, to have a careful look at the evidence. I've divided the episode up into a set of seven questions. Each of these questions should be relevant to the way people behave or set policy. So I think they're important questions where the answers matter. I'm going to start with a disclaimer and some basic principles that I've followed in putting together the episode. The trouble with accessing the research on road safety is that it's highly, highly political. On the one hand, we have motor cars, which are insanely dangerous for a lightly regulated consumer product, but tightly entangled with our current way of life. On the other hand, we have campaigners for road safety who are deeply frustrated with the lack of funding and action on obviously cost-effective improvements. Now, neither side is predisposed to look critically at any particular piece of evidence, and they both tend to latch on to single studies that support their point of view. On the third hand, we have cyclists who, like it or not, are in small enough numbers that they don't always generate the kind of statistics we need to see clear trends or good before and after studies. From their point of view, cycle safety is important, but they see themselves, often with very good reason, as an oppressed minority. Let's take an example just to show what I mean. There's a 2007 study by Ian Walker from the University of Bath, using a single instrumented bicycle to observe where the driver overtaking behaviour changed based on the appearance of the cyclist. So basically, he stuck an ultrasonic distance meter and a video camera onto his bike, and then he cycled round watching cars overtake him. Sometimes he wore a helmet, sometimes he wore a suit, sometimes he wore a wig. The observed effects were incredibly small, and they disappeared under more rigorous statistical treatment, such as by Jake Olivia and Scott Walker of the University of New South Wales published this year. But I've lost count of the number of times I've seen this first study cited as if it were definitive evidence that motorists drive more dangerously around cyclists who wear helmets. Now, I don't want to be overly critical of the original study. It was fantastic that someone actually got on their bike and recorded real data. And it's a model of academic good practice that they then published the raw data for someone else to analyse. The problem is that even if this were a perfectly designed and conducted study, it's still just one study. So here are my rules. Anything that I cite as fact in this episode represents a collection of literature that converges on a common result. I will have located this literature in a way likely to give me an unbiased selection, and I will have checked for conflicting evidence or minority opinions. Typically, most of the studies I use will have a geographic bias, which means that they hold for one particular place and time which is not necessarily representative. Most of them will also have a sampling bias, which means that the data has been collected in a particular way 
that didn't necessarily capture everything relevant, and may even have systematically missed some things. I've done my best to use multiple studies to correct for these biases, but hey, this is a podcast, not a systematic review. I've done my best. I'm not going to cite my sources while we speak, that would be pretty tedious, but the show notes for this episode will have a lot of the references. Unfortunately for you, unless you're at a university, you're not going to be able to download most of them for yourself, but feel free to ask me for help in locating anything in particular that you're interested in. So if there's a particular fact or a particular study I mention, just feel free to send me an email and ask about it. Also, I should point out that I'm sort of a cyclist. I use a bicycle to commute to work. I live in York though, so the main dangers are ice on the bike paths and badly designed kissing gates rather than motorists. For balance, I also own and drive a car. Okay, disclosures made, caveats in place. Let's go, question number one. How dangerous is cycling? There are various ways to compare the safety of different forms of transport. We can do it by passenger mile, or per person, or per hour spent travelling. The only really totally fair way to do it is when people actually have a choice. If you could make the same trip by car, by bike, or by walking, which would be safer? We can't work this out exactly, but we can get a good approximation by looking at people's daily travel. Most people do have some choice about how to commute at least, so it lets us make fair comparisons. In the United States and Canada, walking is about one and a half times as dangerous as driving, and cycling is twice as dangerous as driving. These figures vary a lot between countries and within countries. One study, for example, shows that walking and cycling in San Francisco is almost three times as dangerous as driving, whilst walking in Stockholm is a bit safer than driving in that city. The general trend is that cycling is more dangerous than walking, and walking is more dangerous than driving. The trend is strongest in North America, and weakest in Northern Europe. Now, why does this matter? Two reasons. Firstly, in most cities, the number of person trips made by cars is huge compared to the other modalities. Secondly, most of the people killed walking or on bikes are killed by cars. This is why cyclist safety gets so political. The danger presented to cyclists and pedestrians is essentially a risk transfer to a minority population. Everyone who drives a car benefits from the risk that they impose on the cyclists and pedestrians. Much more public money, though, goes to reducing the risk that the motorists voluntarily undergo themselves, rather than the risk that they impose on other people. Numbers are meaningless without context, so we need to ask, is doubling your risk actually a lot? Roughly speaking, if you're a regular commuter by car, there's about a 1% chance that that's how you're going to die, commuting in a car. If you're a regular commuter by bike, there's about a 2% chance that's how you're going to die. That's equivalent to shortening your lifespan by several years. So yes, as risks go, that is a significant difference. Strangely enough, riding a bike regularly isn't going to significantly change your lifetime risk of dying of cancer or heart disease. But if that is how you die, 
you'll probably be a few years older when it happens. I can't tell you what impact cycling has on your net risk. It really depends how fit you'd be otherwise. For someone like me, who would be unfit if I didn't cycle, and who cycles in a safe area, there's no question that cycling reduces my overall risk exposure. If you're a Londoner who works out daily in the gym anyway, your mileage may vary. Question number two. Is it really true that the likelihood that a given person walking or cycling will be struck by a motorist varies inversely with the amount of people walking or bicycling? This phenomenon is known as safety in numbers. And yes, it is true. The idea is that in places where more people walk or cycle, each individual who walks or cycles is safer. The total amount of injuries may go up when more people are on the move without cars, but the risk per person actually goes down. This relationship holds at particular intersections, but also at the level of cities and countries. The really interesting question is about why this happens. It doesn't make sense that pedestrians or cyclists move more carefully when they're in packs, so there are really only two possibilities. The first possibility is pretty boring, and that's that making it safer for non-motorists also makes it more pleasant for non-motorists, which means there are more non-motorists. So basically, if you make it nice and safe to walk, people will walk. But the second possibility is the really interesting one. Maybe having more cyclists or pedestrians actually makes the motorists treat the cyclists and pedestrians better. They're used to seeing cyclists, they see them as part of the road-using community, and they're more likely to be cyclists sometimes themselves. From a policy point of view, it's very important to know the real reason for this trend. It's very easy to increase pedestrian numbers in high motor traffic areas simply by how you design the spaces. So as a really simple example, if you put the food court on the opposite side of the main road to the office block, you're going to get more pedestrians. If you believe that the causal direction is from the numbers to the safety, you might use safety in numbers to justify why it's okay to do this. At an extreme, you might do this deliberately, and some designers actually do it. They actually put pedestrians in the path of cars, deliberately. If in fact the causal direction is opposite, then we're exposing more pedestrians to danger, and these pedestrians aren't getting any safer just because there are more of them. Question number three. Should cyclists wear helmets? As with any personal safety issue, there's legitimate debate about whether people should be made to comply with a measure that's primarily for their own safety. As is also typical, these arguments get bogged down in questions about whether the measure does actually make people safer. It's much easier to object when people assault your personal liberty if you can also claim that what they're insisting on is nonsense. Let's start by looking at why helmet safety is hard to measure. Firstly, there are different populations of people who cycle, and they cycle in different ways. It's possible that a helmet might help some cyclists, but not others. Secondly, the researchers often forget that you need to separate the effectiveness of the measure and the effectiveness of a law enforcing that measure. For example, 
helmets may be more effective for people who use them voluntarily than for people who are made to use them, or indeed vice versa. Thirdly, any law requiring safety equipment usually changes the profile of people who engage in the sport. It's very hard to track the difference between cycling getting safer and simply having less people cycling. Likewise, when you encourage more people to cycle, not only the number of injuries, but the injury rate itself might go up as more inexperienced people take to the roads. Fourthly, many minor accidents are never reported. They don't show up in the statistics at all. If a victim ends up in hospital, then by definition that was a serious accident. It's really hard to measure harm that doesn't happen because someone was wearing a helmet. When you combine these problems, you can see how easy it is to have conflicting research. You introduce a helmet law and the rate of injuries goes down. Does that actually mean the helmets have made people safer? Or does it mean that fewer people are cycling? Or that the population of people who are cycling has now skewed to have more sports cyclists and fewer commuters? Often, instead of arguing about the rate of injuries, we argue about their severity. So the proportion of severe injuries has gone up. Does this mean that helmets are hurting people? Or that they've now made the minor injuries so minor that they aren't reported? Or does it mean that the subset of people who are cycling are riding faster and so are having worse injuries? With these confusions in mind, let's try to answer some specific questions. Is an individual cyclist safer in a crash if they're wearing a helmet? To make this totally unambiguous, let's imagine cloning a cyclist and subjecting them to the same crash scenario. Cyclist clone A is wearing a helmet, cyclist clone B is not. Does the helmet help? The way to study this sort of question is by a format called case control. You find two groups that have different outcomes and then compare their helmet use. A 2012 study in the Canadian Medical Association Journal compared two groups of cycling fatalities. The first group died of head injuries, the second died of other causes. By using just fatalities, they got rid of a lot of the confounding factors. Both groups were in accidents serious enough to kill them, but only one group were killed by head injuries. If anything, this study should underestimate the helpfulness of a helmet because anyone actually saved by a helmet is not even counted. And it turns out that the group killed by head injuries were much less likely to be wearing a helmet. You need to be careful in this sort of situation not to cherry pick your studies. But this particular result turns out to represent a whole body of literature quite well. Overall, the clone with the helmet will come out best most of the time. Their risk is about 60% lower. This is definitively true for head injuries and for death. It gets a bit shakier when you look at other things like face injuries, where some studies say they help, some studies say they don't. And there's a bit of an open question about neck injuries. Very, very few studies included neck injuries, and it wasn't the main focus even when they did. It's possible, as some people argue, that helmets could increase the rate of neck injuries, but we just don't have good evidence for or against this idea. 
In any case, because we know the fatality risk, we do know that if helmets do increase neck injuries, then they're still overall a safety improvement. But this isn't quite the question we want to answer. Is an individual cyclist safer overall if they're wearing a helmet? Now things get a bit harder. We clone our cyclist, but we don't put them in a crash, we just put them onto the road. Again, cyclist clone A has the helmet, and cyclist clone B doesn't. We know that clone A will be safer if they crash. The question is, which one is more likely to crash? The theory we want to test is whether the helmet will make the cyclist behave differently, or maybe even make the cars around the cyclist behave differently. The problem with testing this theory is that there's such strong causality in the opposite direction. Skilled cyclists tend to wear helmets. Cyclists who follow road rules, who use lights, and who wear high-vis clothing tend to wear helmets. Time-invariant statistical analysis can only show correlation, not causation. There is definitely correlation between safe cycling and helmet wearing. We want to know the sign of the reverse loop in the feedback cycle. When you have a safe cyclist, they're more likely to put on a helmet. When they put the helmet on, does it reinforce the safe cycling or does it decrease it? To work this out, we need an element of time. Specifically, we need to introduce a change and then measure the effect of that change. This takes us away from case control studies to the much more messy population studies. The trouble with these studies is that there's just too many changes at once. Helmet laws typically create an abrupt change in the number of people wearing helmets, but they also create an abrupt change in the number of people cycling. This has second order effects, since an individual cyclist is safer when there are generally more cyclists around. So scratch the population studies, which typically only measure total accident rates anyway, so they can't answer this question for us. What about experiments? What if we actually make a bunch of people wear helmets and study their behavior before and after? Yeah. It would be really nice if people who argued about risk compensation actually bothered to do the experiment instead of just pontificating about it, wouldn't it? The only experimental evidence we have is really the one with respect to changed motorist behaviour. And this is the 2007 Ian Walker study, where he put a sensor on his bicycle, then recorded cars overtaking. His hypothesis was that they would pass closer to the bicycle when he was wearing a helmet and his results seemed to support that hypothesis. However, a statistician called Jake Olivier took issue with the maths in the original paper. In particular, he noticed that the dataset included cars that passed nowhere near the bicycle. When adjusted for this and other multivariate statistical issues, he found the opposite. In fact, wearing the helmet had no measurable effect. He published his results in August this year. So is this really all we know about motorist risk compensation and helmets? One bloke on one bicycle? Pretty much. There've been a couple of informal attempts to replicate the Walker experiment, and they were equally inconclusive. Factors such as the cyclist visibility 
and the position that the cyclist takes on the road do have an effect on car behaviour. But that effect is so much greater than the appearance of the cyclist that we really can't measure much difference caused by how the cyclist looks, particularly whether they're wearing a helmet. So, conclusion. Helmets make you safer in a crash, and they probably, almost certainly, make you safer overall. Should we make every cyclist wear a helmet? Do helmet laws make cyclists safer? Just in case you thought this problem was going to get more and more fuzzy, don't worry. This is where it gets really simple. Just forget for a moment about the physics of head motion, population studies, regulatory theory, and the role of government in managing personal risk. Let's just take this back to safety engineering. Helmets fall into the category of personal protective equipment. In the precedence of risk mitigation, they're a last resort after you've tried or given up on every type of mitigation through design. Cycle helmets are no exception. For an individual cyclist, the choice to wear a helmet is clear-cut. Wearing the helmet will make you safer. At a system level, there are mitigations that are far more effective. And these mitigations will have the side effect of drastically changing cyclist and motorist behaviour anyway. So the question of helmet laws is going to need to be examined again after those mitigations are in place. The reason cycling injury rates are lower in countries such as Holland and Sweden is not because they don't have mandatory helmet laws. It's because they've put so much effort into other effective mitigations instead. Could mandatory helmet laws reduce the risk even further? Well, that's a really nice problem to have to solve. And I really wish we were in a position in England, Canada, Australia or the USA to have to solve it. On the evidence side, there's research from around the world showing that mandatory helmet laws reduce the number of people cycling. Just about the only exception is Ontario, where the helmet law wasn't properly enforced. It didn't stop people cycling, but it didn't make them wear helmets either. Question number four. Are most accidents caused by cyclists disobeying the road rules? The goal of most cycling infrastructure is to reduce potential conflict between motor vehicles, cyclists and pedestrians. It's probably worth pointing out that most studies of cycling infrastructure include protecting bikes from cars, protecting pedestrians from bikes, and the impact they have on motor vehicle traffic. Compare this to most motor vehicle studies, which tend to cover motor vehicle safety and motor vehicle convenience bit of a double standard here. In the wake of bad bicycle accidents or clusters of accidents, there are two different types of responses. One response is to blame the victims and to talk about the need for better cyclist education and enforcement of the road rules for cyclists. At the other extreme, the cycling community talks about the need for better cycling facilities, in particular dedicated bike lanes. It turns out that both camps are partially right. Most conflicts between cyclists and cars involve the cyclist doing something dangerous, often in contravention of the road rules. There are various lines of evidence supporting this. I'm not inclined myself to trust the police statistics where they ascribe blame, 
but I think we can trust the statistics about where the accidents happen. A vast majority involve the cyclist crossing a road, usually from one sidewalk to another. A large portion involve cyclists actually on the sidewalk or on the road against the direction of traffic. On the other hand, before and after video camera studies of bike paths so that, show that cyclist behaviour improves when you add bike lanes and signage. This suggests pretty strongly that the problem isn't that cyclists willfully don't follow the rules. It's that the rules are hard to follow unless you make it clear where you expect the bikes to go and make it safe for them to go there. And I should point out that the statistics are badly distorted by the huge number of children and youths involved in bike car accidents. This isn't much consolation if you're an adult killed while cycling properly amidst dangerously inconsiderate traffic. But it does explain why public agencies attempted to talk about education and enforcement rather than better bike paths. Question number five. So why is it so hard to create decent bike lanes? This probably sounds pretty obvious, but the challenge for designers is to make sure that there's a clear path for each vehicle, bike or pedestrian to follow that doesn't get in the road of the others. And there are a number of ways this is consistently messed up. Firstly, designers create multi-use situations without thinking. For example, they put bus stops in the bike lane or create road geometry so that cars queue over the bike lane when they're turning or demerging. Or they put long stretches of combined pedestrian bike path. The inevitable result of these situations is a thing called leapfrogging, where the cyclist leaves a designated bike path onto either the pedestrian or the motor vehicle zone. It's all very well to say, the cyclist shouldn't do that, or the cars shouldn't get into the road of the bike lane, or the pedestrians shouldn't block the whole path. The cardinal rule, though, in road design, is that unless you make it easy to do the right thing and hard to do the wrong thing, you leave it up to enforcement as your only option. If you're willing to ticket every cyclist who leapfrogs and every car who parks in the cycle lane, then by all means talk about what people shouldn't do. Otherwise, you've got to fix the road so that people don't need to leapfrog. There are a lot of novel solutions in this space, challenging our traditional concepts of what roads should look like. As a simple example, why do bus stops and parking areas need to be at the side of the road? Or why do they need to be on the same side of the road as we put bike lanes? There's no particularly good reason, except for convention. The second problem comes from unrealistic expectations of how much space a bike needs. Allowing for the fact that its geometry changes as it moves, a bike with a rider is physically about 75 centimetres, or 2 foot 6 wide. To operate, it needs 1.2 metres, or 4 feet. If you think this is a bit much, just imagine cycling between two tall brick walls spaced 3 feet apart and never touching either wall. This is the minimum distance. It doesn't allow for one bike overtaking another, or a grating in the gutter, or a rider falling over. Ideally, you want about 2 metres, or 6 feet. For comparison, 
the minimum road vehicle lane in Europe is a smidge over 8 feet. So we're not talking about a bike needing a full road lane. But equally, it's pretty clear that you can't put a bike and a car safely in the same lane and leave enough space for them both. So if you take an existing road and you paint a bike lane onto the outside edge, you typically end up with a too narrow bike lane right next to a too narrow road lane. Perfect recipe for a sideswipe. The third problem is failing to identify and treat conflict points. There's a rule of thumb in bike safety research that on-road bike lanes don't actually reduce the number of accidents, they just relocate them to the endpoints of the bike lanes. A very typical mistake is to not continue bike markings through intersections, or to have discontinuous markings where the cyclists are expected to change lanes or cross roads. Given that these are the exact places where the accidents happen, not having the markings is kind of a problem. A convention that's starting to be used is to have two different colours for bike paths to indicate right of way. This makes it obvious where the cyclist is expected to move, but also who's supposed to give way to whom. It's particularly useful when you're expecting the cyclist to cross a road lane, to put in a diagonal stripe to show the cyclist exactly where they're supposed to move across, and to put in a different colour to say they're supposed to move across but they're supposed to look and give way when they do it. Question number six. How dangerous are bicycles for pedestrians? There's a rather morbid study in Forensic Science International that examines pedestrian-cyclist collisions in detail. The figures they use, which are pretty typical, show a very small number of fatal pedestrian-cyclist collisions, with the pedestrian usually, but surprisingly enough not always, as the fatality. Pedestrian-cyclist collisions usually result in very minor injuries. The typical scenario where things are more serious is where an elderly pedestrian sustains injuries in a fall caused by the collision. And that's almost always the cause of the fatality. It's the pedestrian hitting the ground after being hit by the cyclist. The important question for policy making is if you have to make a choice, do you put the bicycles with the cars or do you put the bicycles with the pedestrians? The overall injury load is clear. Many more cyclists are injured by cars than pedestrians by cyclists. But basing policy on injury load like this is what gets us into trouble in the first place. By the same logic, many more motorists get killed than cyclists get killed, so we shouldn't spend money on the bikes anyway. It's fairly clear that this isn't the logic we should be following. And it's also fairly clear that the elderly are a particular subset of the pedestrian population who are vulnerable to bicycles. And there's probably a lot of not unreasonable fear and distress caused to that same age group by cyclists. The problem becomes even clearer when you consider that simply moving the cyclists onto the footpath isn't even safer for them, the cyclists, anyway. When you put cyclists onto footpaths, you get lots of collisions at road crossings and driveways, and this balances out the improved safety between intersections. That's an important message for both policymakers and individuals. Cycling on the footpath may seem safer, but it really, really isn't, even for kids. It just puts elderly pedestrians at extra risk, and it makes the cyclists unpopular. If you're going to move the cyclists onto a purpose-built path, that's a different story. Then, 
The important thing is clear information to keep the pedestrians and the cyclists reasonably separate. The ideal is to make the pedestrian path uncomfortable for cyclists by making it textured, and the cycle path obviously not for pedestrians, by giving it a curb that makes it look like a mini road. Question number seven. Are those cyclist airbags really such a good idea? There's a company called Hovding producing an alternative to helmets. The Hovding device is a bulky collar that uses accelerometers to detect a collision or fall, at which time it triggers inflation of a very stylish looking full head helmet. The company website shows videos of the device working and makes claims about its ability to handle similar forces to those required by helmet standards. Now, it's completely plausible that this device works as is claimed, but there are a lot of legitimate questions where there's simply not enough public information. The biggest risk of such a device is failure to deploy. Since this is under software control, you'd really want some assurance about the exact range of circumstances under which it should deploy and evidence that every version of the software satisfied these requirements. You'd want to know about its ability to detect and handle hardware failures in the electronic and the ability of the hardware to handle imperfect software. The real problem is the balancing act between failure to deploy and inadvertent deployment. This is always going to be an active trade-off between two risks. At the time I looked into it, the Hovding material didn't mention inadvertent deployment at all. Maybe they just don't want customers to think about it. But I'd be much more comfortable if they were open and transparent about the hazard trade-off and how they were dealing with it. The device also faces regulatory difficulty, simply because of the way helmet standards are written. For example, the US standards don't describe the real-world requirements, they describe the tests that the helmet has to withstand. These tests assume a solid helmet, so they're not at all friendly to alternate solutions. The Bicycle Helmet Safety Institute website has a very fair review. Most of the other sites just seem to quote the marketing material or scoff at the idea. And I don't think either approach is helpful. Having alternatives to helmets in that space is a good idea. It's just a question of getting the alternatives right. That's seven questions and seven answers that I hope you're happy with. If you've got concerns with any of the answers, in particular if you think there's something I've just plain got wrong, then do send me an email at feedback at disastercast.co.uk or visit the website and click on the feedback button. You can also do that if there's a question about cycling safety you're expecting me to handle in this episode that I missed altogether, or if there's another topic that you'd like me to treat in a similar way. Just for fun, here's some of the research I came across that you might find used or misused in safe cycle safety arguments. There's an article in the British Medical Journal that found that heavy goods vehicles caused far more cycling deaths in London than cars or buses. They proposed that until the causes of the risk are fully understood, a heavy goods vehicle ban should be considered. Unfortunately, their own logic in the paper applied to their own figures in the paper, would also require a ban on female cyclists in the inner city and a ban on male cyclists in the suburbs. You've got to be careful just how much you extrapolate from small bits of data. Another BMJ article found that most children injured on bikes 
received their injuries from falling off, not from hitting other vehicles. They quickly conclude that this fact is actually irrelevant in determining the overall effectiveness of helmets. An article in the British Journal of Sports Medicine compares the number of cycling fatalities to the total number of other road fatalities and concludes that overall, more lives would be saved by making car users wear helmets. They're undeterred by the facts that to reach this conclusion, they had to assume that all head injuries in cars would be prevented by wearing cycle helmets, and that junior school statistics suggest that ratios might be more relevant than total numbers for performing this sort of analysis. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. As well as direct download, listening on the webpage, or feeding to your favourite podcast player, DisasterCast is now streamed through Stitcher. Both Stitcher and iTunes depend on user reviews, not just ratings, for listing and ranking podcasts. So please do consider giving DisasterCast a brief review. One or two sentences is all it takes to boost the rankings and help other people find the show. As a little incentive, if at least 10 listeners post reviews during December, I'll put out a bonus security and safety episode in January, in addition to the regular fortnightly releases. The next episode of DisasterCast is due on the 31st of December.